Now, uh, this morning, we are discussing the subject of discernment. We are discussing the subject of biblical discernment. And what I want to do before I give you an outline uh, that we're going to do, the outline we're going to walk through, what I want to do is I want to give you a definition of what biblical discernment means. See, because biblical discernment is different from worldly discernment. And so I want to give you a definition so that as I use the word discernment throughout this message, we can all be on the same page. Okay, so this is the definition from Dr. John MacArthur. Here's how he defines discernment. He says, in its simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment is synonymous with an ability to think biblically. According to the New Testament, discernment is not optional for the believer. It is required. So go back to the previous slide. Look how he defines discernment. It is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. And so as I speak to you about discernment this morning, this is what I mean by discernment, okay? So now that we're all on the same page with the definition of discernment, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the subject of discernment under three headings, all right? We are going to look at the need for discernment, then we are going to look at the areas for discernment, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the source of discernment. So the need for it, the areas for it, and the source of it. So let's begin by looking at the need for discernment. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what we see here in this passage is we see the need for discernment. We see the need. There is a need for discernment. Well, why, do we, why is there a need for discernment? Because he says that not every spirit is from God. So the reason why Christians need to have discernment is because not everything spiritual is biblical, right? One of the things that happened during the, the gold rush, when, when all the 49ers and all the explorers were going west looking for gold, is they, 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 this, this phenomenon came around called fool's gold. And there was things that they were, they, were, they were rocks that they found that would look like gold, but they weren't gold, right? And so the, what they did is they came up with these tests in order to figure out if it was gold or not. One of the ways they would do it, it would be by, by, by knocking it against a rock because gold is soft. And so if you hit it against a rock, it would, it would actually dent. But if it was just a rock, it wouldn't dent. So that's one of the ways they would figure out if it was gold or not. And another way was they would rub it on some fabric, and gold actually leaves a yellow, a yellow tint when it's rubbed on fabric. And so they had these tests that they would use to evaluate whether it was real gold or fool's gold. And so the same way in which those people had to figure out if it was real gold, we have to do the same thing as well. We have to go through the same process. Because listen, not everything that shines is gold. Right? Not everything that's spiritual is biblical. And so what John is saying here is what he's telling us is there, there's, there's a need for discernment. We Christians need to be discerning because if we're not, we're going to buy into all the things that the world and the enemy and the flesh try to sell us, every worldview, every conviction, every truth claim, every value, every ideology, we're just going to buy it, believe it, and make it a part of our lives. So the first truth that we see here in this passage is we see the need for discernment. And so what John does here in verse 1 is he actually gives us a two-step process that we need to go through if we are going to be discerning people. 
He gives us a two-step method of, uh, on how to discern truth, or how to discern these spirits, these ideas, these, these, these worldviews that come our way. And in this passage, these are the two steps he says. If we are going to be biblically discerning people, the first thing we have to do is we have to stop believing. That's the first step in the process. We have to stop believing. The second step in the process is we have to start testing. So according to John, if we are going to be biblically discerning people, we have to stop believing, first step, and we have to start testing, second step. Where do I get the first step? Well, I get the stop believing step from verse 1, right at the beginning, because he says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. And here's what's interesting about that phrase in Greek. The phrase, do not believe, it, for one, it's an imperative, okay? So because it's an imperative, sorry, my things bother me, um, because it's an imperative, He's commanding it. In other words, John is not suggesting that we stop doing this. He is commanding that we stop doing this. And here's the other thing. Not only is it imperative, but it's written in the present tense. And the reason why commentators say that's important is because John, he's not warning us of something that's going to happen later. He's actually telling them to stop doing something that they were already presently doing. So he's not, he remember, and remember, he's talking to Christians here, and what John is saying, John's not saying, hey, listen, um, um, at one point, there are going to be false teachings, and you have to be careful. That's not what John's saying. John's saying, there are already false teachings, and you've already believed them. So stop doing it. Stop doing it. And this, listen, remember, these are Christian people who he's writing to, not non-Christians. So what that means is that if they are prone to believe things that are not biblical, then, and, and not only are they prone to, but they're already doing it because they lived in a pluralistic, relativistic, inclusive society, which is very similar to the society that we live in. If they were already doing it, you know what that means? So are we. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, man, I wish, I wish my, my, ch- my son was here, or I wish my, my daughter was here, or I wish my, my spouse was here, because you're right, Pastor Will, you get them, you tell them. There are false beliefs that we have to be careful with. There are worldviews that we, we have to just make sure we protect ourselves from. And I wish so-and-so was here. I wish my unsaved neighbor was here. Listen, listen. This passage is not about them. This passage is about you. You're the one that's already believing these things. I am the one who's already believing these things. So before you start thinking about who should be here or who shouldn't be here, you need to be here. Because we do this. I do this. We are all guilty of this. Now, here's the thing, whether you know it or not, every single one of us has a theology of every single thing in our life. So here's what I mean. You have a theology of dating. You have a theology of parenting. You have a theology of marriage. You have a theology of money. Every single person in here is a theologian. Whether you are a Christian, a non-Christian, a Muslim, or a Jew, every single Christian in here is a theologian. We have a theology of everything in our lives. The question is, Who informs that theology? God or the world? So if your daughter or your son is struggling with a dating situation and you give them advice, what type of advice are you giving them? If a friend of yours is bitter because someone has hurt them, what type of advice are you giving them? Because you have a theology of reconciliation. The question is, is the theology from the Bible or is it from the world? Okay? So before you start looking for people to, 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 oh, I wish so-and-so was here, oh, I wish this person was there, or I wish, and the reality is most of our theology is informed by our worldview and by the world that we live in instead of from the Bible. And that's why John has us to stop believing every spirit. Not because we might do it, but because we are already doing it. 
And here's the thing. For those of you who were here last week, if you guys remember, when we were here last week, we were discussing the subject of condemnation. And what I said is that there's a lot of different ways that we deal with condemnation, right? So we deny it, we deflect it, uh, we put ourselves on detention. There's all these different responses that we have, and none of those responses were biblical. But let me give you an example of the slippery slope that this passage is talking about. So this week, my wife, we were having a conversation, and she ended up getting discouraged about something. And she was feeling condemned about being a mom, right? She was feeling condemnation about being a mom. Your pastor, your faithful, Bible-loving pastor, gospel-proclaiming pastor, my wife is struggling with condemnation. And you know what I say to her? I'm like, honey, don't be condemned. Don't be discouraged. You know why? Because you are a great mom. You are an awesome mom. Look at all the stuff you do. Look at all these great things you do for the kids. Don't be condemned. You're awesome. So listen, I had just finished preaching a message, and what I said was that the only answer to condemnation is the gospel, and then my wife is struggling with condemnation, and I counsel her the same way a secular person would counsel their spouse. She was struggling with low self-esteem, so what did I do? I gave her a high self-esteem. Don't don't be sad. Don't be condemned. You're awesome. You know what I should have said? And I actually did say it because I got convicted right away. I walked away from that conversation, and then I thought about the sermon I preached, and I went back and I said, you know what, honey? I love you. And honestly, it doesn't matter if you're a good mom or a bad mom. Your standing before God is not determined by how good of a mother you are, but it's determined by the fact that you are God's precious child. It's not what you do that makes you approved by God. It's what God has done and what Jesus did for you. So right away, I repented because it hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. Like, wow, you want to talk about, that's how worldly we are, though. The guy who just preached the message on it does the very opposite thing of what I told us to do. So you could tell how worldly you are with how you counsel people. You could tell how worldly you are by how you pray. You can tell how worldly you are by how you deal with adversity and suffering in your life. See, all of us are theologians, and all of us have a theology of everything. The question is, who informs that theology? God or the world? This is what uh, John Stott has to say. John Stott puts it this way in his commentary on this passage. He says, there is no need, sorry, there is need, there is need for Christian discernment. Then he says, for many are too gullible and exhibit a naive readiness to credit messages and teachings which purport to come from the spirit world. There is such a thing, however, as a misguided tolerance of false doctrine. Unbelief can be as much a mark of spiritual maturity as belief. We should avoid both extremes. The superstition which believes everything and suspicion which believes nothing. So he says, you know, we, we always determine how mature someone is by, is by how much they believe. How much do you believe? And what John Stott says in light of this passage is that your spiritual maturity is not revealed not just, not, not just by how much you believe, but how much doctrine you don't believe. Okay? So the first step that we need to take if we are going to be biblically discerning people is we need to stop believing. We need to stop doing what we've been doing, which is believing anything that comes our way, right? The second step we need to take, if you go back to verse one, if we're going to be biblically discerning people, not only do we have to stop believing, but we also have to start testing. We have to start testing. So if the first step is reactive, the second step is proactive. We need to start testing. I get that from the second part of the verse. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from 
God. Okay? Now, the word there in, in the Greek, test, it means to examine something. It means to scrutinize something. It means to analyze something. It's exactly what I said the, 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 the explorers, the 49ers who were going through in the Wild West. They, 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 they picked up gold and they would analyze it. They, they would scrutinize it. They would examine it to make sure that it wasn't fool's gold, but it was genuine gold. That's how we have to be. We have to start testing everything that comes our way. We have to test it before we believe it. Because that word in verse 1 where it says, do not believe, the word believe means to completely trust or rely on something. What a lot of us do is anything that's remotely spiritual, we just completely trust and rely on it and don't even think about testing it or analyzing it or examining it. And what John says is that it's extremely dangerous. That's an extremely dangerous thing for us to do. And here's why we have to start testing things. The reason why you and I have to start testing things is because when, when we already said that we were already believing. So not only are we not testing, we are believing anything that comes in, just wholesale, full, just full board. Yep, whatever you say, I'm taking. I'm taking all spiritual things like it's created equal, right? But the reason why we have to start testing things is because I've realized in my own life that the most dangerous theologies, the most dangerous worldviews, the most dangerous doctrines are the ones that have a little bit of truth mixed in them, Right? So no one here is going to start believing in Satanism, right? No one here is going to go uh, fall into witchcraft or the Wicca, right? Because that, that's pretty obvious. But the dangerous things are the things that are already mixed with truth, have a little bit of truth in them. And you're like, what's the problem with a little bit of falsehood? Nothing bad with it. Well, what's the problem with water with a little bit of poison in it? it can still, it'll still kill you, Right? So it's those things that are mixed with truth that we are most tempted to believe. Here's the thing that most breaks my heart, and I'm talking about myself here, not just you, that many of us, we will sit down and watch TV, we will go to the theaters and watch a movie, we will turn on the radio in our car and listen to the radio, we will turn on the news and watch the news with the same openness and vulnerability that we would on a Sunday morning with a sermon. We sit in front of all that. We're on social media, and we're, we're just as open and just as exposed and just as teachable in front of a TV, a radio, or a, a movie screen, or a computer screen, just as open to any idea as we are on Sunday morning. We have no guard up whatsoever. You realize how dangerous that is? If you guys remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about worldliness, we said that there are two types of media. There was this guy named Trevin Wax. He wrote a book on how to interact with the world. He says there are two types of media. There is mirror media, mirror, mirror, like reflecting mirror media, and then there is blueprint media. Mirror media, blueprint media. And here's what he says. Everything you see on TV, in movies, in commercials, on the radio, everything you hear on the radio or on social media, it's, it's one, one of two types of media. It's either a mirror that's reflecting back to you what the culture already believes, or it's a blueprint promoting a view that they want the culture to believe. Right? So anything that you ex- get exposed to on media, it's either a mirror of what's already happening or it's a dream, it's a blueprint of what they hope will happen. See, but when we sit down, we don't even think about that. We just think it's a great movie. We just think it's a great Netflix show. We just think it's, a, it's, a, it's our favorite news channel. We don't think anything of it. That's just the way it is. And that's extremely dangerous. The other day I came across this study that was done by Lifeway, Lifeway uh, Christian ministries. It was done last year uh, in 2016. And what they did is they took a thousand parents, a thousand families, 
And here was, here was what the purpose of the study was. The purpose of the study was to determine what are the contributing factors that determine whether or not a child will stay in the faith when they get older. That's what the, the whole premise of the study was. And so they took, they took 1,000 families, or about 900-something families, and they interviewed both the child and the parents. And some of the children were walking with the Lord, some of the children were not walking with the Lord, right? And what they tried to determine was what, what are the things that the kids who are walking with the Lord did that the ones who aren't walking with the Lord didn't do. And to my surprise, and I, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and to my surprise, it wasn't having family dinners together. It wasn't doing family devotionals. Listen to this. The number one contributing factor on whether or not a child would continue walking with the Lord or not was if that, that, that child had a personal Bible reading time every day. The number one, and it wasn't even close. It was like, miles ahead of all the other ones. That that child had a personal time of reading and praying with the Lord every day. And then I think number three was that that child didn't listen to secular music as the primary like, music that they listened to. So it wasn't being in a youth group. It wasn't going on a missions trip. It wasn't a family devotional. It was how much time did they spend in the word by themselves? And number three was how much time do they spend listening to secular music? Now, I don't bring that up to be religious. I bring that up to tell you that it makes perfect sense, right? Because in Romans 12, the Bible says that do not be conformed to the world, but be renewed. Allow God's truth to renew you. That's what God's, God does. When you're wrestling with God's word as an individual, not only does it keep you from being conformed, but it actually renews you and makes you more like Jesus. So when that child gets older and goes out into the world, and the false teachings show up through media, through music, whatever, they can actually see it because God's word is the filter and the standard by which they judge things. It's not what their parents told them. It's what God told them, right? That's why this is so important. And of course, I, the music one doesn't surprise me either. I remember when I first became a Christian, one of the things that slowed down my growth was that I kept listening to secular music. Because think about it, a three-minute song, all that is is a sermon, a song is a sermon. They're preaching some worldview to you. They're preaching some message to you. Now, I'm not saying don't listen to secular music. I still listen to a bunch of secular music. But I just don't listen to it with my brain turned off anymore. A song is a sermon. It's preaching to you another worldview, another, another way of life, uh, uh, another ideology. And so it doesn't, that, that study doesn't surprise me at all. The Bible has to be the way in which we test the spirits. Look at this quote from J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor that died a long, long time ago. He says, a man must make the Bible alone his rule. He must receive nothing, he must receive nothing and believe nothing which is not according to the word. He must try all religious teaching by one simple test. Does it square with the Bible? What does the scripture say? So our question shouldn't be, how do I feel about it? The question shouldn't be, does it work? The question shouldn't be, does it make me feel better? No, no, no. The question should be, does it square with the Bible? Is this biblical? If it's not, don't listen to it. Okay? So, what we see, the first truth we see is we see the need for discernment. And if we are going to be biblically discerning people, we have to be people who stop believing and start testing. The second truth we see here, if you could put the three points back up, the second truth we see in this passage is not just the need for discernment, but we also see areas for discernment. 
And so what John does here in this passage is he gives us three areas that we need to evaluate, three areas that we need to identify if we are going to be people who make the right decisions, if we are going to be people who evaluate false doctrines and false ideologies and false worldviews correctly. And what John's saying is that there are certain, if you want to tell, if, there, if there's a new idea that's, that's presented to you, a new truth claim that's presented to you, the way you evaluate that is by looking at three areas. And as you look at those three areas, as you ask three questions, you will be able to tell if this is a valid biblical uh, uh, worldview or if it's not. So here are the three questions. The first question we have to ask when we are evaluating a worldview is we have to ask, who or what is this worldview confessing? And I'll explain what that means in a second. But who or what is it confessing? First question. Second question we have to ask is not only is who or what is it confessing, but what is the content of this worldview? What is the content? What, what is the message that it's proclaiming? And the third question we have to ask is, who is the crowd? Who is its audience? Who is listening and, and liking it and reposting it? Okay? The three discernment questions are, who does it confess? What is its content? And who is the crowd? Who is the audience? Who's listening to it? Okay, so, so let's, let's go through these three questions. The first question that we have to ask is we have to ask, who do they confess? Who do they confess? And I get that from, if you, go, if you put the passage back up, verse 3. In verse 2 and 3, he says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And so the first way that you can tell the validity of a worldview, of an ideology, is by asking yourself, who does it confess? Because the word there, acknowledge, I don't know why the NIV puts acknowledge. I don't think that's the word that should be there, because the Greek word is to confess, it should literally say every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The reason why I think the word confess is so much better is because the word confess in Greek means an unwavering allegiance. It's a public declaration of an inner conviction. That's what the word confess means. That's why I think it's such a stronger word in English. It means to agree with someone. That's why when we confess our sins, what we're saying is we agree with what God says about our sins. That's what confession is in Greek. It's to agree with what you say, God. Okay? So the first way you can tell whether a spirit is, is from God, an idea or an ideology or a worldview is from God, is by asking, what's their view of Jesus? What, what does this worldview claim about Jesus? And I don't want you to miss this. We can easily repass this verse. But that one section, he's saying a lot about Jesus. He's not just talking about the prophet Jesus that most of the world accepts. There's this guy that lived a long time ago who wasn't God, who had a lot of, you know, tweetable statements, right? That's not the Jesus he's talking about. Because there's a few phrases that he says that, that show us that he's talking about Jesus as Lord. Because he says, he calls him Jesus Christ. So he uses the full title that Jesus has. The word Jesus means he who saves, right? And then Christ is his title as Lord. So by using Jesus Christ, he's saying people who confess him as Lord and Savior, not just people who have a mental assent to him and say, oh, yeah, he was a great guy. No, no, people who see him as Lord and Savior. And then he says, every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come. Now, the reason why that phrase has come is so important is because he doesn't say that Jesus Christ was born, but that it has come. And what that means, what commentators say, that phrase, what it implies, is that it implies that Jesus existed before he got here. Right? So that's talking about the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God. He was somewhere else, and then he showed up. That's the deity of Jesus. But then we see the humanity of Jesus because it says Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So we see the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus in the same verse. So when this passage says that we need to listen to worldviews that confess Jesus, Christ, 
that has come in the flesh. What it's actually saying is that you need to listen to worldviews that believe Jesus is Lord, Savior, fully God, fully man. If a worldview doesn't promote that, if an ideology doesn't promote that, we either reject it all right, outright, or we have to be very careful with what we take from it. Okay? Because here's the problem. I don't want you to miss this. If a worldview, whatever worldview you're, you're being tempted to believe, if a worldview doesn't see Jesus as a savior, you know what that means? It means that we aren't sinners. That's the danger. If, if a worldview is presented to you, if an ideology is presented to you, right, if a truth claim is presented to you, and it doesn't have Jesus as Savior, then by default, what that means is that we are not sinners. And if we are not sinners, if we are not the problem, then by default, what that means is that we are the solution. See why that's so dangerous? Most worldviews, the passage says it at the end, that everything is either from the spirit of truth or the spirit of falsehood. Every idea, every worldview, every ideology either comes from the spirit of truth or comes from the spirit of falsehood. There's only two places it can come from, or the spirit of the Antichrist is what it says there. The way you can tell where it comes from is by what they say about Jesus. So if the worldview tells you, hey, you're awesome, you have to believe in yourself, you got to just love yourself, then I'm almost positive that's not from Jesus. Because what that worldview is telling you is that you're not the problem, you're the solution. And we're not the solution, we're the problem. Okay? So a worldview can be determined by who it confesses. You know, one of the phrases that is thrown around all over media right now because of the political climate is fake news. Fake news. So you go on CNN and they're talking about Fox News. Oh, that's fake news over there. Don't listen to them. And Fox News is looking at CNN. No, that's fake news over there. Don't listen to them. Fake news is being thrown all over Twitter and social media. Fake news this, fake news that. You know what's fake news? You believing anything other than the gospel. That's fake news. Because the gospel is good news, and anything that's not the gospel is fake news. But we as Christians, we just have our guard down. Hey, any, any idea, any, th- any theology, any worldview, yeah, yeah, bring, bring it on. The more the merrier. This is great. No, no, it's not great. And you know what the sad thing is? That it's not just outside that we have to be careful, the church, but it's even inside the church that we need to be careful. You know, one of the people who is very famous is Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is all over, right? He's been on Larry King. He's been on, he's been on Oprah. He's all over. Here's the thing about Joel Osteen. And, I'm, and, and, and listen, I'm not saying this because I'm jealous of the man. I'm not saying this because anything or that he has a big church because the Bible says, Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you, okay? So this, is, this isn't one of those, hey, hey uh, I'm jealous of Joel Osteen because promise, I promise you I'm not. But here's what it is. There's a book I read a few years ago called Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. And three chapters of the book are dedicated to Joel Osteen. See, because the problem with Joel Osteen, he's, he, I don't know what his motives are. I don't. But the problem with him is not what he says. It's what he doesn't say. So a lot of people listen to Joel Osteen like, what's wrong with this guy? He's so encouraging. He's so uplifting. Yeah, but he never brings up sin. He never brings up death. He never brings up hell. He never brings up the cross. He never brings up atonement. And it's all about you having your best life now. Joel Osteen can preach at any mosque, in any synagogue, and nobody would be offended. You know what? Because it's the gospel that offends. The gospel is what offends people. That's the problem. John Piper has this video on YouTube. Just type in John Piper Prosperity Gospel. And he gives six reasons why, biblically, 
prosperity gospel is not only not biblical, it's the, the antithesis of the gospel. And that's what Joel Osteen preaches, that God wants to bless you, God wants to heal you, God wants you to be rich, God wants you to have your best life now. Think about how heretical that is, that, that you, your best life is right now. We're going to be in heaven if you're a Christian, and your best life is right now. And that you should be rich when our, when our founder died naked on a cross. Right? That's why we have to be careful. Because you leave a message like that. And, and actually, I was just talking to someone after the first service, and he was like, you know what? I've listened to Joe Lowstein for all these years. And he's like, I get why I leave so encouraged, because I leave thinking about me. He's like, I didn't realize that until you said it today. I leave thinking about me and what I've done and what I'm going to do and why I'm special and nothing about Jesus. That's not the Bible. That's a TED Talk. Right? Look, look at what Michael Horton in that book, Christ of Christianity, he says. He says, regardless of the official, the official theology on paper, so he's talking about the beliefs of a church, regardless of the official theology on paper, moralistic preaching, the bane of conservatives and liberals alike, moralistic preaching assumes that we are not really helpless sinners who need to be rescued, but decent folks who need good examples, exhortations, and instructions. So every church makes one or two assumptions. Either you are a sinner who's dead in your sin and needs a savior, or you're just a decent person who just needs a pep talk. Okay? That's the only way. Only two approaches. It's only two approaches. So every church believes one of two things. Either you are a good person who just needs resuscitation, or you are a sinner who needs resurrection. And whatever you decide on that will change the way you preach. Look at this ad. I, I was reading this article and, uh, on, on this subject of the exclusivity of the gospel. And the person who was writing the article, he, he, he found this ad, this advertisement that was posted by a church in his local newspaper. Look at this ad from the church that he, that he well, I, don't know, I don't know the name of the church and neither should you. I'm not here to attack a, a specific church. I'm just saying, look at this ad that they put in the local newspaper. Have you ever wanted more out of life? We can help. Discover powerful and easy secrets that have been proven and are guaranteed to give you the results you want. Whether you desire love, health, money, or simply more fulfillment and satisfaction in your life, now is the time to take advantage of this new and exclusive series being introduced for the first time in your area, absolutely free. Learn how you too can start seeing an immediate difference. No matter who you are, you too can profit from knowing these safe, and trusted and easy to understand principles for personal growth and achievement. Stop missing out on the life you could be living. You have nothing to lose, everything to gain. If, 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 if I just read you that and didn't tell you it was a church, you would think it was a self-help seminar. You would think Oprah was coming to town. A TED Talk, like I said, you would think it's a TED Talk. My, 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 one of my professors at Moody always said, Whatever you win people with is what you win people to, right? So if I win you with a self-help, uh, self-centered message, then, then when you get into the church, you're going to expect a self-help, self-centered faith. Because whatever I win you with is what I win you to. So if I win you with Disney for Jesus, you're going to expect Disney for Jesus. And that's why this is so dangerous. It's so incredibly dangerous. So the first question we have to ask, if we are going to be discerning people, is we have to ask, who do they confess? The second question we have to ask, if we are going to be spiritually discerning people, is we have to ask, what is their content? What is the message that they are proclaiming? And I get that from verses 4 and 5, if you can put that up. 
Actually, verse 5 in particular. It says, they are from the world, listen to this, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And so according to John, the second question that we should be asking is what is their content? What is the content? What, what are the values that this worldview is promoting? What are the convictions, right, that this worldview is promoting? Because he says, if the worldview is from the world, they will speak from the viewpoint of the world. That's how it works. So when, when, when a new idea or a new ideology or a new worldview is presented to you, you have to ask yourself, are you speaking from the viewpoint of the Lord or are you speaking from the viewpoint of the world? One of the ways you can tell is by asking, what is the purpose of life in this worldview? Is the purpose of life in this worldview for me to, be, for me to discover myself? Is the, is the purpose of life in this worldview for me to be happy? Because in the Bible, God doesn't call us to be happy. God calls us to be holy. And if happiness is in there, amen. And if it's not, amen. Okay? What's the purpose of this worldview? What's the point of everything according to this worldview? If it's not to glorify God and enjoy him forever, like the catechism says, then you should reject it. Okay? What is the content that they are communicating? You know, one of the things that the world does is there are, there are three major values that the world is constantly promoting. I, I'm going to focus on two, actually. The first one is this. There is no such thing as absolute truth. So you don't have absolute truth. I don't have absolute truth. Everything is relative. And so as long as we really believe in whatever we believe in, everyone's fine. That's one of the values the world is always promoting, through television, through radio, through social media, okay? Another value that the world always promotes is the, the, the faith is a private thing, not a public thing. So whatever you believe, keep it to yourself. And your faith should not affect the public sphere at all. When we're talking about politics, when we're talking about marriage, and we're talking about human life, your faith should not have any bearing on what you say in those arenas. Those are two values that the world is always promoting, okay? Now, here's the thing. Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary who went to India for years, he was someone, a very intelligent man. I think he was British. I think Leslie Newbegin was British. And he, 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 he heard the argument, the argument that the people in his day, which is the same argument people use today, is the elephant argument. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the elephant argument, but the elephant argument is this. Three blind men walk up to an elephant, and one of them is touching the trunk, the other one is touching the leg, and the other one is touching his side. And the first blind man says, I believe that God is soft, long, and flexible because he's touching the trunk. And the other one says, no, I believe God is, I can kind of put my arms around him a little bit, but he's very firm and, and, and strong. And the other blind man's like, I don't know about that. What I'm feeling here is it feels like a wall almost. And what the, the illustration says is that there's no such thing as absolute truth because all we have is an aspect. Every religion has a particular part of God, and no one has the full picture. And so Leslie Newbegin, as he traveled through India and as he, as he debated people, he ended up getting so tired of this illustration that one day he actually thought about it and was like, let me think about what this illustration actually means. And he found two major errors with that illustration. The first one is this. That in order for you to hold that view that there's no such thing as absolute truth, you actually are proclaiming an absolute truth. Okay? So because people who, who say stuff like that be like, there's no such thing as an absolute truth. Be like, bro, why are you pounding the table then? Right? There's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, clearly there's some absolute truth here because you're pissed. You're really angry right now. Right? Clearly there's something here that's, that's, it's, that's absolute truth. Right? They say, oh, there's no such thing as doctrine. That's a doctrine. You saying there's no doctrine is a doctrine. Oh, I don't believe in pat answers. 
That's a bad answer. Right? And what Leslie Newbigin says is that it actually takes a lot of pride to hold that position because the person who says they're all looking at an elephant, the person who has zoomed out far enough to know what they're all touching, it's actually very prideful because what he's saying is we're taking our modern Western view and we think that we're better people than people from the past and we, we, we've zoomed out so far that we're the only ones that know it's an elephant that they're touching. It takes a lot of pride for you to know what the animal that they're touching is. That you're so enlightened now that you get it and nobody else does. Right? It takes a lot of pride for us to get to that place. And so what he argues, and I think this is just so insightful, is that all the things that we consider absolute truth in our culture aren't necessarily absolute truth. It's just a reflection of the culture that we were born in. So, so Tim Keller, he uses this illustration. I think it's just so insightful. He says, pretend you have a boy, an eight, nine-year-old boy, who was born in the time of the Vikings, okay, in a tribe of the Vikings. Then pretend that same eight, eight or nine-year-old boy grew up in New York City in 2017, okay? He said, now, let's, let's say for example's sake that there are two major desires that this boy has. One is same-sex attraction, and the other is a desire to murder people, okay? If that boy grew up in the Viking times, you know which value and which desire would come up to the surface? The murdering people, because he would become a warrior, and he would fit the context, and he would suppress the same-sex attraction because that's not acceptable in the culture he's in. That same boy was born in 2017 and grew up in New York. You know what value would be elevated? The same-sex attraction, because murdering is bad. Hurting others is bad. But expressing yourself sexually, that's what we want. And so what Keller says is that so many things that we consider absolute are only absolute because of the culture we live in, because of the values that we already believe. Then he uses another example with the same boy. He says, imagine there's two verses in the Bible, right? In the Bible, there's a bunch of verses about miracles and resurrecting and all this stuff, right? And then in the Bible, there's also verses about turning the other cheek and loving your enemy. He said, if you were back in, in Viking times and that was preached, they would have no problem with the miracles and the supernatural because Vikings believed in miracles and the supernatural, but they would hate the part about loving, you know, turning the other cheek and loving your enemy. You don't do that if you're a Viking. But then you take those same verses and flip them in our modern day, and we hate the miracles, and no, there's no thing as miracles. We're, we're, we're enlightened people. There's no such thing as miracles, and they, but we love the turn the other cheek verses. And what he's saying is that all the things that we consider absolute are not that absolute and that our worldviews are more determined by where we are born and who our family is and the time in which we're living than but what, we, what the Bible actually says. So when people tell you, oh, I believe that Christians uh, should, 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 should in, in, you know, engage in the public sphere but leave your faith at home. Don't bring your faith. What they're actually saying is that bring whatever part of your beliefs that agree with me and everything that doesn't agree with me, you keep it over there, okay? Because think about it. How can you, how can anybody make, let's say that you're making legislation on marriage, for example. If you're making legislation on marriage, the purpose of marriage is going to come to mind when you're making the legislation. So if you think the purpose of marriage is for you to be together and to honor God and that it's a reflection of Christ in the church, you're going to put rules to make sure divorce is hard to do. There's no way that your beliefs can't affect your, 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 your litigation on marriage, and if you don't believe that, then you're like, well, we don't need any rules. You can divorce whenever you want. And so what's funny, what the culture says is don't bring your faith, and you can bring your faith only if it agrees with what we say. And look at this quote from Ravi Zacharias. This is so interesting. He says, it took years, he's talking about himself, he said, it took years to find out 
that the cry for openness is never what it purports to be. What the person means by saying, you must be open to everything, is really, you must be open to everything that I am open to, and anything that I disagree with, you must disagree with too. That's religious freedom. As long as you believe the absolute, so what he's saying is, is that all of us believe in exclusive truth claims. All of us believe in absolute truth, whether we are Christians, Muslims, Jews, or atheists, or postmodernists. All of us believe in absolute truth. All of us have a set of exclusive truth claims. Why? Because if you don't believe what I believe, I feel like I'm better than you. I dehumanize you. I separate from you because I have an exclusive set of beliefs, even though it doesn't seem like it's exclusive, but it is exclusive. And the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that we admit that we believe exclusive truth. That's the only difference. We both do, but we're the only ones that admit it. Okay? So first test is who do they confess? Second test is what is their content? And the third one, and I won't spend much time on this one, is who is their crowd? If you go back to verse 5, he says that they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And look what it says. And the world listens to them. The third and final way that you can tell if a, if a worldview is from the world, uh, uh, yeah, if you have a worldview or a, or, a, or a doctrine or a ideology is from the world, is by asking who's listening to it. Who's the crowd? Because remember what I said earlier, Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you. And according to scripture, the gospel is offensive and the preaching of the gospel is foolishness. And so if something's going around and it's carrying a lot and, and it's being liked and reposted by everybody in the world, by, by, by celebrity that, it's almost positive it's not from the Lord. I heard a seminary professor say once, he said that if you really want to offend people, preach moralistic, law-based preaching. Give people rules. If you really want to offend people, give people rules. He's like, but if you really, really, really want to offend people, preach the gospel. Because people get bothered when you tell them, hey, you need to do this, 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 and this. But people get really bothered and really angry when you tell them there's nothing you could do because Jesus already did it. So the bigger the crowd, the less likely it is from God. Okay? So those are the three questions. Who do they confess? What is their content? And who is their crowd? So we've looked at, if you could put my three points back up, we've looked at the need for discernment, we've looked at the areas for discernment, and then as we conclude, I want to talk to you about the source, the source of discernment, the source of our discernment. Now, the reason why I want to end by talking to you about the source of discernment, here's why, here's why. Because when it comes to a passage like this, and when we listen to a sermon like this, one of the mistakes that Christians can make, and it's actually a mistake that we get accused of all the time by the secular world, is this. Secular people, the reason why a lot of secular people don't consider Christianity is because they see Christians, because they claim to have exclusive truth and the only way to God, they see Christians as arrogant, as entitled, as superior, right, as prideful. And here's the thing, we can't help the fact that the message we proclaim is exclusive. That's just what the Bible says. But you know the thing that most breaks my heart? The reason why most secular people think we're arrogant, entitled, and prideful, it's not because of the message that we preach, but because we actually are arrogant, entitled, and prideful. Some of the most annoying people on social media are Christians. Some of those annoying people on radio are Christians. Some of the most annoying people on television are Christians. And Christians, they get the gospel, this exclusive gospel, and they think they are exclusive themselves. They think they are better than people. They think that everything that they've been given is because they've earned it somehow, and what they're actually preaching is a religion and not the gospel. 
See, because religious people are very divisive. Religious people dehumanize others. Religious people separate from others. Religious people look down on the nose on others. Why? Because when you're religious and you're the one that has fixed yourself and you're the one that's living up to the right standard, then you're going to judge everyone who doesn't live up to the right standard. But if you really understand the gospel, there's no reason to be prideful. There's no reason to be arrogant. There's no reason to be entitled because Jesus came to tell you that you're a nobody. To be a Christian, you have to admit you're a nobody. And so when a Christian comes up and tries to, to, to become prideful over a, a doctrine that's supposed to make them humble, then what is, what is the problem is not the doctrine, the problem is us. See, because the, the thing that this passage says again and again and again, and five times, I think it's five or six times in the passage, the passage says, from God, from God, from God. So our identity is from God. Our security is from God. The exclusivity is from God. Our, 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 our value is from God. Our message is from God. The exclusivity is from God. Everything is from God. The whole thing is from God. So why are we behaving like it's not from God? Why are we behaving like we've done anything for it? The whole thing is from him. The only reason why we have an identity is because Jesus lost his identity. The only reason why we get to, to, to embrace the good news of the gospel is because at the cross, Jesus absorbed the bad news of the gospel. The only reason why we get to overcome he who is in the world is because the one who is in us is greater than him. Not us. He's greater than him. We're nobodies. All Christians are are nobodies telling everybody about somebody. That's what we are. That's what we are. And so we have to get to the place and listen, if you're, if you're a non-Christian here, if you're a secular person here, and the reason why you haven't come to know Jesus is because Christians are arrogant and prideful, I apologize on our behalf because we are. And you know what it means? That we don't understand the very message that we're preaching. Because in the passage, it talks about the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. And here's what's so interesting about the spirit of the Antichrist, okay? In, 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 John, in John chapter 2, let me throw this thing down. I, I, I'm getting into it. So, so, so in John chapter 2, in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27, there, there, there's, we, that's the passage that we skipped. He talks about, in that passage, about the person of the Antichrist. The person of the Antichrist is the person that's going to come at the end of time and is going to stand against Jesus. But here in this passage, he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. And one of the things that blew my mind as I studied this passage is that the spirit of the Antichrist is not just a, a, a person or an idea that stands against Jesus. But listen to this. The spirit of the Antichrist is a, is a person or an idea that stands in the place of Jesus. It's not just to stand against Jesus, but to stand in the place of Jesus. So, so what we do when we assume that we're the ones who did it, that we're the ones who've earned it, that we're the ones who made it, is we're actually promoting the very spirit that the passage is telling us not to promote. We're replacing Jesus. We're saying, I don't need Jesus. It's not from God. It's from me. But it's not from you. It's from God. The whole thing is from God. That's what we need to understand. We should be the most humble. We should be the most broken. We should be the most inclusive. See, gospel exclusivity should lead to relational inclusivity because we can't be better than anybody. I'm not better than you. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter who your family is. We're all the same in front of Jesus. He came to die for all of us. That's what we need to understand. And so if the anti-gospel, if the anti-gospel is us replacing Jesus, then the real gospel is Jesus replacing us. If the anti-gospel is us replacing Jesus, then the real gospel is Jesus replacing us. To the degree that you understand gospel exclusivity, to that same degree, you will express a gospel humility. Amen? Let's pray.